you would think that the most absurd thing in the world that someone could say is that they're grateful for something that's objectively bad. Or maybe it's the most true thing you could say. Maybe the highest light possible in the universe is to be found in the darkness. Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversations for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Here's our host, Menachem Poznanski. Hey, Consciously family, welcome back. Okay, here we go. It's uh, We're here. Hanukkah is just around the corner for those of you listening to the podcast. And that got me wondering about something that you notice if you ever have the opportunity to attend an open or a closed meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or any of the 12-step programs, people there will say the oddest thing. They'll say something like, Hi, my name is Blank, and I'm a grateful, recovered, or recovering addict or alcoholic. Or they'll say something like, I am so grateful to be a member of this program and to be an alcoholic or an addict, whoever they're talking to. And for an outsider, it could be utterly puzzling. What are they talking about? Who wants to be an alcoholic? Who wants to be an addict? Who wants to have problems? I mean, this is, this, you know, confusion is not limited to those people in recovery. You hear people all the time like saying things like, I'm so grateful that I had the that issue, that struggle that came along. And, you know, it's 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 really, really remarkable. And we have to kind of really think about it and also think about how that's connected to the message and the intention, at least some of it, of Hanukkah. But two things before we get there. First of all, thanks for joining us. Thanks for being on the podcast, listening to the podcast. If you'd like to subscribe and give us five stars in a review, that's wonderful. If you'd like to just share us with a friend who you think would benefit from us, that's even better. Um, you can also visit us on Light Revealed on uh, social media at The Light Revealed and also on our our, we- our website, thelightrevealed.org. Also, um, we actually have been collecting some email addresses and Morty and Zoe have been working on a newsletter. Part of it is related to what Joey's been doing, if anyone's been noticing. Um, it's like a weekly reflection uh, related to the spirit of recovery and the Pneumius, uh, the spirit of the light of Pneumius HaTorah. Um, but other things also, and uh, hopefully it'll be something you can find in your mailbox on a weekly basis, some stuff you can print out. We're definitely preparing something for Hanukkah. So visit the website. You can subscribe there to the to the uh, to the mailing list. We will not send you tons of things. We have no agenda. Uh, just to share as much light as we can. So check that out. Also, you can email us at lightrevealed at tlrfamily.org. Okay, that's the first thing. Second of all, before we can try to understand what that whole thing has to do with Hanukkah, we have to first understand Hanukkah. Like, what is Hanukkah? But from a more important frame, to ask ourselves this, why Hanukkah? What's so significant about it? Now, what do you mean? What do you mean? What's so significant of it? About it? Well, there's there's two things. American Jewry are, is very preoccupied. Not just American Jewry, but the entirety of the world. But in particular, American Jewry is very preoccupied with Hanukkah. Everyone celebrates Hanukkah. There's no one that doesn't celebrate Hanukkah. Maybe this year it's a little bit weird because some of the Gentiles are really giving us a hard time. But 
Hanukkah is like just something across the board, across the spectrum of observance and belief and faith. Everybody wants to celebrate Hanukkah. You know, you go to Israel, even more so. It's like the whole country turns upside down. I'm sure this year it has kind of a, it will have, you know, somewhat of a muted uh, nature to it, but the donuts and the lighting outdoors, the whole thing, it's just clearly something in the Jewish soul is really deeply connected to Hanukkah. In addition to that, why are the miracles of Purim and Hanukkah chosen specifically to be immortalized, meaning the Jewish people have experienced countless miracles. Hanukkah and Purim represent the final two mitzvos of the Rabbanon that kind of fill out, complete out within the frame of Pneumius HaTorah, frame out, complete out the Kesser of God, which is the numerical value of 620, which is 613 base mitzvos in the seven Rabbanons, Purim and Hanukkah, in specific, is the last. It's the completion of the crown of God. Many miracles happen to the Jewish people throughout history, and for some reason, the story of Purim, the rabbis felt it really needed to be, you know, focused on, and the story of Hanukkah, which came only a few hundred years later, also needed to be focused on, and we needed to create new mitzvos, new laws, and new intentions that would transform the entirety of Jewish life. Without Hanukkah and Purim, we would go from, basically, from Sukkot, from the end of Sukkot, after a whole month of holidays, all the way until Pesach, without any holidays, a couple things in between, a couple fast days, a couple of, uh, you know, a Tubishvat, but for the most part, no holidays. And then you have, here comes Hanukkah and Purim, and they really just fill a vacuum of space, and particularly Hanukkah, which takes eight days, and we say a whole Hallel with a you know, the entirety of Hallel, there's just, there's a, the, the davening is longer in the morning, the mitzvah is at night, so it really kind of captures the day here, at least very much so here in the Northeast, um, but I'm sure throughout the world where the days are so short and then we have to get home to light, it just dominates our life for eight days, for more than a week. So what's specially, what's special about it? What's unique about Hanukkah, and what is the message that we're trying to draw from it, particularly in the lens of what we're trying to do here on this podcast, which is related to, like, spiritual development, spiritual recovery. So before we can go there, I want to uh, touch on something that actually is related, if you're listening to this on time, to the portion of this week in the Torah, the story in the Bible that is reflected in the portion that the Jewish people are reading at this time. Um, in the Parsha of Vayeshev, or the episode of Yaakov, who finally, after 22 years, comes home. He overcomes the challenges that his brothers, that his brother Esav, uh, poses, and he makes it home to his father, and he settles. And the rabbis tell us that the, the Torah is alluding to the fact that Yaakov felt that he had finally kind of reached a place where he could retire and sit Beshalva. All of his children were complete. They were all tzaddikim. And he figures, like, the future is is great. He says he has Yehuda, he has Yosef, he has Ruvain, he has all of his children, he has Levi, he has all of his children together. And finally, after so much trials and tribulations and so many losses, including his, his beloved 
wife, Rachel, he, he, he wants to settle down a little bit. And as we know, that doesn't happen at all. Yaakov feels, and the Svarim HaKadoshim, it teaches us that Yaakov feels that it's, it's actually the time of La'asad Lavo, that there's really, like, Mashiach's going to come, so to speak, whatever that means. And uh, Mashiach's going to be revealed. And the exact opposite happens. Gula doesn't happen. The brothers can't be tolerate, can't be Sovel, can't tolerate Yosef. Yosef has dreams. Yosef himself seems like a very car- complicated figure in the story. You know, he's, uh, on the one hand, he's utterly kind to his brothers that come from the maidservants, and he's trying to strengthen them, be machazic them, you know, support them, give them, you know, reflect their inherent value. That's on one part. On the other part, they, he seems to really be rather troublesome. You know, he's telling his father, he's report, giving bad reports, he's a snitch, so to speak, Lahavdil, right? But uh, he's, and and he has these dreams of, you know, that the brothers perceive as delusions of grandeur, that he's going to assert himself as the king, when meanwhile they know that Ruvain is the, the Bechor, and Yehuda is destined to be the king, and they're very concerned by us, the, the commentators teach us. So Yosef is complicated. The brothers are, they can't even, they're so lost in their resentment, they can't even say a kind word to their brother Yosef. And eventually, they send Yosef into Gullus. They they sell him to Yishmaelim, who send, sell him to Mijanim, and eventually he's sold down to Egypt. And then, an even I mean, more Gullus occurs. It's not only the Gullus of Yosef, but also the Gullus of Yehuda. We find out in uh, in Ravi of this week's of this week's portion, that Yehuda had lost his stature amongst the brothers because of the role that he played in the selling of Yosef down to Mitzrayim, and that he goes off on his own. He goes into his own gullus and he starts his own life. And there he has sons, and his sons are are not, you know, they're not great guys, and they're punished by God. They lose their lives because they're. They're acting in a in a way that's riotous, that's not in line with what God wants for them. And then a really remarkable thing occurs. If you look at the story at that moment, where Yosef is in exile, Yaakov is in an abject state of mourning that we know is going to last two, 22 years. Yehuda, who's supposed to be the king and the leader and the, the spiritual symbol of the family, is himself in Gullus, and now he's lost two of his sons, who were not properly following in his path, it seems like the Jewish people had gone from a place of real hope to real hopelessness. But we know through a series of events, Yehuda ends up marrying his daughter-in-law, who, whose, sons, whose husband had died, Yehuda's sons, Tamar, and he has children with her. He has two twins who are both tzaddikim. And one of those twins is the ancestor, the forebearer of Mashiach. That in that place of abject hopelessness, the seed of Geula begins to germinate. Now, one of the really remarkable things that we see about this is that Mashiach kind of enters the story just here when it seems like it's most hopeless, but we don't actually, nothing's actually happened yet. I mean, Yaakov himself is in suffering. The brothers don't know what to do with themselves because they can't console him. Yehuda is kind of ostracized from the family, though at some point he seems to come home. But we don't really see that there's real geula coming up. But in retrospect, we know that, uh, that David Melch comes from, from the, the progeny of Yehuda and Tamar. So we know that Mashiach 
has come on the scenes with our 2020 vision. With our hindsight, we can see that, that Mashiach is there. And yet, what happens? There's 22 years of suffering. Yosef goes through his trials and tribulations and faces the possible sin with Potiphar's wife, which we know he almost gave into. There's a, a horrible famine in in um, throughout the whole world, right? We know that overtakes the whole world. And even when Yosef gets out of prison, he still is not sure if he can contact his family, depending on how the commentators, you know, why didn't Yosef contact his family, contact his father. But nonetheless, he's there in Egypt. The brothers come down. Yosef, from Yosef's vantage point, he knows that he's just testing his brothers. But from the brothers' vantage point, they truly believe that the Gulas Mitzrayim has begun, and they're now going to have to go into servitude. And this is, this is the end for them. The hopelessness seems to be expanding from that place, from that hopelessness, that moment that we talked about earlier where Yehuda, Yosef, Yaakov, Everything is hopeless. And yet, we know behind the scenes, there's something occurring. There's, there's a series of events. Not coincidences, but as they say in the rooms of recovery, in the 12-step rooms, more like God incidences. Like, things are occurring that are beginning to reveal the whole plan for what it was to be the whole time. We're starting to see the broader picture. That's one of the beauties of the story of Yosef, of Yaakov, and then Yosef, and the brothers, and the brothers being sold, is that it's the first time that we're introduced to the idea of a divine plan that is clearly in play, because we know the end, and yet the characters in the plan don't know what's going on. And how this is really a macrocosm, this is a archetypal uh, example of our experience in life, that so much is going on often that, in retrospect, when we look back later, 20 years down the line, we realize the, the, the hand of God or the usefulness or meaningfulness of the struggles that we went through. But in the moment when we went through them, it appeared like hopelessness was utterly abounding, like there's no way that we can overcome this. And yet, 20 years later, we know that we got through it. We survived. So that, that, that's part of what this story starts to reveal, because we know, because the people reading the book are the people that got out of Egypt. So we know that, that, that Yaakov and his children end up in Mitzrayim. We know that Yosef becomes the leader of Mitzrayim. We know that he has provides food so that the family of Yaakov can survive through the famine. We know that, that eventually even further disaster occurs, and the Jews are enslaved for 210 years, but eventually, God sends the tzaddik, the Raya Mehemna, the, the, the faithful shepherd, Moshe Rabbeinu, and he takes us out of Egypt and brings us to Sinai, and we receive the Torah. So we know the, the end of the story, but in the story itself, it's, it's not clear. So this, this nakuda, this inner point of faith, that oftentimes, when we, it seems like the world is at its most uh, mindlessness, or the m- least sense, it's often because we are in the midst of a string of events that we will not understand until later, because we are confined by the limitations of time and space and happenstance, right? Like, and which is what occurs in time and space, right? We God does not look at the world through the lens of time and space. From God's vantage point, He's looking at the broader picture, but we are looking at things on a very, very small level. So let's say, for example, sometimes people will feel like, you know, well, I prayed and nothing occurred, right? Like in this last series of events, historically speaking, like there's many, many stories of like, 
don't know, I heard recently there was a story of a, a woman who made like a challah bake and as she's making the bracha, her husband, who was previously a hostage or something or, or was missing or a soldier that she was davening for came in or another mother that was doing, did a challah bake, meaning where she gathered women together to make a bracha and challah together and to say prayers and the fa- and she wasn't an observant person, so this was something new for her. And the following day, her daughter is released as a hostage or discovered or found, right? So those are wonderful. And all of us, or many of us, probably have had moments in our lives where we prayed, and the result that we prayed for, it seems pretty obvious that, you know, our prayers were answered. And as many of those as we have, many of us have moments where we prayed and we didn't see any answer. And it seems like no one's listening. It seems like all the good deeds that we're doing don't make a difference. We look around at the world and we could look and see a lot of hopelessness. On the other hand, if you look at the world from a macro perspective, if you look at the world, if you try to see the world through God's lens, you can begin to see that like, there's been a lot of progress between how regular people lived 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago on a material level, I'm not even talking on a spiritual level, on a material level, versus how they live today. We have access to clean water. We have access to basic food needs. The percentage of the world that lives in abject poverty without access to, to daily sustenance and, and clean water is, is very small. I mean, it's relatively small, especially compared to what it was even 30 years ago. It's remarkable, the evolution of human society, the 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 plowing forward towards some like utopian universe even though it seems like how is that going to really play itself out it seems pretty remarkable that we can speak to people from across the planet that people can get surgeries and medical procedures for all sorts of things that even a few short years ago were a death sentence the world is propelling forward with more and more good so if you look at that context, then it's like, well, no, maybe all the good deeds and all the prayers that we've been doing are actually working, right? If I look at my little individual moment, the individual moment of my life, all I can see is the suffering. But if I step back and look at the broader picture, then then I could see much, much more. And in truth, this is really the crown of God's will. And it's the way that he seems, if you just observe life, that he intends things to be revealed. Surely our missteps and overreach might make things more complicated, but God wants to reveal Geula through some of the most obscure darkness and confusion that can be imagined. He wants to reveal a kind of Geula that reveals that there was no confusion or darkness at all. You see, because when... Geula, when redemption, when elevation, spiritual elevation occurs out of a darkness, occurs out of a space of hopelessness, it reveals something very novel. It reveals that there's light in darkness. It reveals that there really is no darkness at all. There's just a type of light that's harder to perceive, meaning a moment that we were walking through where in retrospect we can see in, how, in, in the way in which how that moment was critical for us to come to the good that we now currently have, and yet in that moment it felt like darkness, but later on it's revealed that that was actually light. And really this is the, the message of Hanukkah. 
This is why it's the crown. It's the c- completion of the Kesser of Hashem. The whole idea of Hanukkah was Rabim, Biad, Me'atim. It was a few defeating the many. Right? It seems like the, the enormity of the Assyrian Greek army would overcome the Jewish people, the Hashmanayim, and yet the Hashmanayim were able to uh, defeat them. Then they, there's no oil. Nope. There's one pach, one pach shaman, one jug of oil. There's not enough oil. Nope. There's just enough. Just what we need for eight days to last us uh, eight days. Then even so, the, the menorah that they lo- lit, we know, historically, was uh, it wasn't the menorah we see in, uh, I mean, in Titus's arch, which is probably not the menorah at all, but, but nonetheless, right? It wasn't the, the menorah of Herod's temple. It was, it was pulled together at the last minute to try to do the best we could. It was an Abes Amigdash that was in disarray, that was partially destroyed. So you look at the end of the story of Hanukkah, where they've lit the, the, the menorah for eight days, and you start to think, like, is this really Gula? And we can see now that even though from a lived and manifest point, the geula of of the Chashmonayim was not a full geula, but but in fact the imperfect lighting that the Chashmonayim did was one that shines light for all of Gaulus until Mashiach is revealed in totality. It's the light that we are lighting now. It's the the joy and the happiness and the attraction that you see every Jew all over the world being attracted to Hanukkah. Even Jews that are the most disconnected in some way want to connect to Hanukkah, want to, to, to be illuminated by the light of Hanukkah. Hanukkah reaches into the heart of every single Jew, no matter how far or how disconnected they might be. You see, this is the the, the mature and real message that Hanukkah brings and that speaks to every Jew. You see, in just that place that the world seems dark, darkest, that's where you reveal that there actually is light. And when you do that, you reveal that there's no darkness at all. You, you see, in that space, in the Beis Hamikdash, when the Hashmonayim defeated the Greeks, this is what I was talking about. The Hashmonim defeated the Greeks, and they come to the base of Migdash that is defiled. And they want to do something. They can't carry on the Karbanos, but they want to do something. And they decide they want to light a Hanukkah menorah. They want to light, not a Hanukkah, they want to light the menorah. But then they can't find oil, and then they find one, one small jug of oil, but it's only enough oil for one day. And then the oil lasts, the, the oil that's sufficient for one day lasts them for eight days until they can get more oil. And then they can continue to light the menorah again and again and again. The whole beauty of that message is that that little willingness of a Jew to show up and light in spite of how insignificant that lighting sounds is just, I want to just try to light until I can continue to light so that I can keep focused in on the light, is, which appears to be depressing. And like after so many battles and finally overcoming and expelling the Assyrian Greeks out of our homeland and, and, and reestablishing a Jewish kingdom in the Jewish state, I can't just light a menorah? And the answer is, looks like no. And then just like that, I can. And not only that, but that light itself, that willingness to face that darkness, is a light that will last for all generations. In fact, the, the rabbis teach us that it is the light that through which Aaron HaKohen himself was comforted 
right? When he saw when the when when Moshe Rabbeinu established the Mishkan, all of the the Nesiei Haeda, the 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 princes of all the different tribes came and brought their sacrifices, and Aaron going felt bad that the Levim, his tribe, did not bring one of these sacrifices. God says, no, your their sacrifices will end. Your your light, the lighting of the menorah, will go on forever. And Rashi there brings down that the sages teach us that that is referring to Hanukkah, which didn't manifest for almost a century. This is the light that that lightens up the entirety of the Jewish people, one that itself comes from from, from darkness. And that's because the whole intention for reality, the Svarma Kadoshim teach us, is a dira betachtonim. God wants to have a, a light in the lowest space. And the reason why God wants to have a light in the lowest space is because when you reveal light in the lowest space, you in the lowest space, you reveal that there is no lowest space at all. When you have the or of God, the light of God, a dira, a space of dwelling for God, betachtonim, it reveals that there is no tachtonim at all. And this reflects an idea that we talked about last week also, where Rabbi Nachman says something like, asur lehisya'esh ve'enyeyush ba'olam. It's asur, it's forbidden to be, to, be, to be hopeless, to feel hopeless, and there's no hopelessness at all. Well, which one is it? Either it's forbidden to be hopeless, or there's no hopelessness. And the answer is, it's forbidden to be hopeless. It's forbidden to see hopelessness when you find the light in the hopelessness, then you find out, ancient Yesh Ba'ilam Klau, that there's actually, that there's no, there's no hopelessness in the first place. And this idea really reflects what we were talking about before with the, the programs of recovery, where addicts in recovery discover that their greatest liability is their most enduring strength. You see, when we f- stop focusing on darkness and instead bring light where it's needed, we will find that there is no darkness at all. And this is what alcoholics and addicts and people in recovery and people that have gone through suffering reveal. They look back at their experience and they say, I'm not just grateful to be on the other side of the experience, but I'm grateful for the experience itself and what it made me. And they are expressing this idea of Adira Betachtonim that reveals that there is no Tachtonim because the darkness itself is light. The light of Hanukkah is the light that is revealed in darkness, which is why we light the Hanukkah candles below 10 Tvachim, below the space of 10 portions from the ground because that is the space where there is, so to speak, no uh, presence of God. That is the space of the most darkness in the universe. That's the whole idea of Hanukkah, is this revelation that light found in the darkness is not only also light, it's the greatest light that there is. Thank you for joining the Consciously family. Consciously is brought to you by The Light Revealed, a social media publisher bringing messages of Jewish spirituality and recovery to whoever is looking for them. Consciously is made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tzipporah Bas Ravaram. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review and subscribe wherever else you get your podcasts. We love connecting with you, so please check out our website, thelightrevealed.org. Feel free to email us at thelightrevealed at tlrfamily.org. Our producer is Morty Schwartz. Our social media content team is Zoe Poznanski and Tehilo Nassanian. The assistant to the regional co-host is Shmaya Hanekman, and our music is by Eitan Katz featuring Zusha. Thank you for joining, and we wish you the most blessed day in only revealed ways.